Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down from there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put, me, uh, put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in the house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. She told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him succeed. I can't imagine what it would be like to be falsely accused of a crime. I mean, imagine you go home this afternoon and you get a knock on the door and there's a police officer standing there. He says, put, put your hands behind your back. You're under arrest for murder. They take you away, take you to the booking station, and then take you to prison, and then transport you to another prison. And you're there for the next 15 years, all for a crime you didn't commit. I can't imagine what that would be like. A number of years ago, 1872, there was a man named William Marion and Jack Cameron. They met at a Kansas boarding house, and they became close friends. And they would kind of travel around looking for work, um, and they would just kind of go from town to town doing that. And along their journey, they made a stop at the home of, uh, of one of their in-laws, Marion's in-laws, and before they were going on to the next place. 
But after they went there, Marianne returned alone. And he returned alone, and he was wearing Cameron's clothes, and he had Cameron's horses. Cameron had disappeared. A few weeks later, there was a body that was found with three bullet holes in his face. He was wearing the clothes that Cameron was wearing the day that he left town. Immediately, there was a manhunt to find Marion. He was a prime suspect in this murder. But he evaded the authorities for ten years. After ten years, they finally captured him. His trial and conviction was very much abbreviated. His trial was only lasted about an hour, and then he was condemned to be hanged. And he ended up being hanged on March 25, 1887. But four years later, an unexpected visitor showed up in this area. It was Jack Cameron, the man that he had supposedly killed. He reappeared looking for his old friend. Apparently he had gone to Mexico to avoid a shotgun wedding. His parents wanted him to marry someone he didn't want to marry. And so he gave his horses and all of his other possessions to Marion, and now he had come back to get them. Little did he know that his friend had been charged with this crime of murdering him. The only slightly positive side of the story is that a hundred years after his execution, he was pardoned uh, by by the governor of Nebraska. I can't imagine what it would be like to be accused of something like that. I mean, I've, I've been accused of little things here and there, you know, when I was growing up and whatnot. But to be accused of something like murder or something that is really serious. Uh, And to be punished for that, I can't imagine what that would be like. I mean, what kind of things would go through your mind? God, where are you? God, I've been trying to do all the right things, and here I am being punished, even though I didn't really do anything wrong. I wonder if that's how Joseph felt. We know that Joseph was the victim of his brother's wrath, He was thrown in a pit and then sold into slavery. And now he's the victim of a spurned woman. And he's wrongly in prison. And so the question that I would like us to to consider for today is, how do we make make sense of this injustice? How do we deal with systems of injustice? How do we deal with a world in which innocent people are sometimes condemned? People who do wrong sometimes go free. How do we make sense of a world in which sometimes people don't have anything to eat, but others have so much that they don't know what to do with? How do we make sense of a political system that's marred by sin and selfishness? How do we make sense of a world that's intolerant towards Christians? You know, the word of the day is tolerance. But if you take a stand on a biblical issue, suddenly tolerance goes out the window. There's an intolerance towards Christian belief and towards Christian values. So how do we make sense of these injustices that we face in this world? So that's the main question that we're going to look at as we look at the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And the second question we're going to look at that's kind of embedded in this story is how do we deal with temptation? So those are the two questions that we'll look at today. So let's jump right into the story. We 
took a chapter diversion from the story of Joseph last week when we looked at the story of Judah and Tamar. And before that, we had ended the story with Joseph's brothers deceiving Joseph's father, Jacob, telling him, you know, insinuating that a wild animal had eaten him. And Jacob is mourning uncontrollably, but remember in the text it said, meanwhile, Joseph was being sold into slavery, sold to Potiphar, who was official of Pharaoh. And so that's where we pick up the story. And things are going really well. They're just going splendidly. It says in the text that Joseph found great favor with Pharaoh. We know that Joseph was a household slave rather than a servant that worked out in the fields. He didn't have to face the hot sun of Egypt. He worked in the, you know, in the household. It says in this text, the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. The Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And Potiphar had such confidence in Joseph that he gave all of his possessions and all that he had into his hands. So much so that he says that he didn't worry about anything that he had to do except what he was going to eat for the day. He didn't worry about anything. He had that much confidence and that much faith in Joseph. We see that God's blessing is upon Potiphar and Potiphar's household because of Joseph. And that's the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. That through Joseph, who is a Hebrew, the Egyptians are starting to be blessed. And that was kind of God's design for Israel, that through Israel, Israel would be kind of the conduit of God's blessing, that through Israel, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So that's the start of the fulfillment of that promise. So everything is going perfectly well, as well as could be expected, but trouble is coming. It says in the text, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That Description, handsome in form and appearance, occurs one other time in the Old Testament, and it's to describe his mother, Rachel. So he was very handsome, very attractive, and Potiphar's wife says to Joseph, lie with me. It's a similar kind of unbridled passion and lust that we see in the, saw in the last story with Judah uh, trying to sleep with Tamar, who he thought was a prostitute. And Joseph refused. He says, your master, your husband, he's put me in charge of everything that he owns. He's put his utmost faith and confidence in me. Now how could I defraud him and do this evil thing? And further, how could I sin against God? But every day, she kept coming. And it seems like she tried to get him to compromise. It says that she, tried to say, she said, lie with me. He wouldn't do that. So it seems like she tried to kind of weaken uh, the request. Verse 10, it says that he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. To lie beside her or to be with her. This is a phrase that we don't, I don't think we see anywhere else in Scripture, to lie beside her. But it seems like she's getting him to, she's trying to get him to slowly compromise his values. Joseph You've been working all day. Now, I've prepared this bed here for you. Why don't you just come and take a nap? You know, we won't do anything wrong. Just come and take a nap. Just rest here. Joseph, uh, you're hungry. You know, you've been working all day, and, you know, you've got to be hungry. So why don't I get my service to prepare some lunch for us, and just come here, and we'll just eat lunch together. I mean, 
There's nothing wrong with having lunch, right? It seems like she was slowly trying to get him to compromise his values. And we see here the heart of temptation. Little compromises can lead us to a great fall. It's very rare that somebody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to commit adultery today. It's very rare that somebody wakes up in the morning one day and says, I'm going to become addicted to pornography today. It's very rare that somebody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to become addicted to alcohol or to drugs. It's very rare that someone wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to become a compulsive liar today. It starts with little compromises. Little compromises that leads to a great fall. So God has given us something called a conscience. You know, and sometimes there's some confusion about what a conscience is. A conscience is kind of a warning system that God gives us that there's something wrong. A conscience is not perfect. We can't tell right and wrong always from conscience. You know, we think about story of Pinocchio and the Jiminy Cricket that says, let your conscience be your guide. It really can't be your guide. It's a warning system. It's not perfect. It's not always accurate, but it is a warning system that something is wrong. But each time we make a compromise, it starts to deaden our conscience. It starts to skew our conscience. The scriptures say it starts to sear our conscience, so that our conscience loses its bearing. So the first time you do something, you might feel really bad about The second time, you might feel bad about But the third time, you don't feel quite as bad. If you keep doing it over and over and over again, and you get to a point where you don't care anymore, you don't feel bad at all. You know, and if that happens in a number of areas of your life, you get to a point where you just have no conscience you know, and that's kind of an extreme example, but you get to a point where you can't really tell right from wrong. That warning system is seared, it's broken. See, what's unthinkable at one time can become natural with a little bit of compromise. Things that we might have thought as unthinkable at one point become, can become natural with a little bit of compromise. When we head down the road of compromise, we might do, end up doing things that we could have never dreamed that we would do. You see stories of pastors who have fallen into sin. And a lot of those pastors who have fallen into sin, they, they said, I never would have done this. I would never do something like this. And yet they fall into that sin from little compromises. I was driving in car a while back and I don't know what station it was on and I think I was just flipping through the stations and I came across this program and there's this marriage and family expert who I don't believe was a Christian and uh, he was talking about the dangers of pornography use and uh, he made a very interesting statement he said something like this he said basically I'm sure there are cases to the contrary he says but I'm not aware of any person who became a serial killer who was not first addicted to pornography. That doesn't mean that everyone who views pornography will become a serial killer, of course. I mean, that's a really extreme example. But I think it shows that one compromise, 
One compromise that we might even consider to be small can lead to another compromise, at least to another compromise, so that we get to a point where we don't even know what right and wrong is anymore. Until we're doing things that at one time we thought were unthinkable. But Joseph, he refuses to compromise. He will not lie beside her. He will not even be with her. But she comes upon him one day, and she grasps his clothing. This word for grasp is a word that's often used in context to denote violence. He probably was sitting or standing, and she came up behind him, grasped his cloak. She's fighting with him, trying to rip his clothes off. Now at this point, he doesn't try to reason with Potiphar's wife. He doesn't say, oh, give me back my cloak. He doesn't stay in the situation. He runs from the temptation. He runs out of there as fast as he can. He wants no part of this. He doesn't want to put himself in a situation where he might fall into sin. We don't know the depth of his temptation. We don't know that as he came every day to do his work, we don't know if he was starting to get worn down. Maybe he was thinking about giving in to that temptation. But he chose to get out of the situation, to flee, to run, so that he wouldn't make a poor choice. See, he doesn't wait until he gets into the situation to decide what he's going to do. He doesn't wait till he gets into that situation of temptation and think, oh, what should I do? Should I stay here? Maybe it's not that bad. He doesn't wait. He knows what he's going to do. His mind is completely resolved before he gets into that situation. And when the temptation presents itself, he knows what he's going to do. He's not going to reason with it. He's just going to flee to run from that temptation. You know, I think about, you know, let's say you are trying to be on a diet. You know, and your weakness is eating donuts. And uh, you're going along one day, you're past your favorite donut shop. And you think to yourself, oh, I shouldn't, shouldn't stop at the donut shop. That wouldn't be a good choice. But you think, oh, well, it's my coworker's birthday. Maybe I should stop and get them a dozen donuts. <laughs> you know, I, won't, I won't eat any of these donuts. But then you go in and you look in the case and you see they have a special donut for St. Patrick's Day. And it looks amazing. And it's a limited time donut. And you think to yourself, well, it's only going to be here for the next week. I'm going to miss out. I won't be able to get one till next year. So you think to yourself, well, I'll just eat one. And then you eat another and another. And then your friend has no donuts. If only you would have kept driving. And I think that's the kind of heart that we need to have towards temptation. We just keep on driving. When we see it, we just keep on driving. The scriptures tell us, like Joseph did, to flee, to run from temptation, to keep on driving. We see that in a number of places in scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Don't try to reason with it. Don't stay in that space of temptation to see maybe, maybe I can stand up in this place of temptation. It says, flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6.11, speaking of fleeing from false doctrines, quarrels, and greed, says, 
But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Joseph had made up in his mind beforehand, and when he got into that situation, he knew what he was going to do. He was going to run from it as fast as he could. And yet while Joseph fled, we see that Potiphar's wife made up a story about him. She says that he came in to take advantage of her. He says, she says that the garment was left beside her as if he was coming in and disrobing himself to take advantage of her. He plays upon maybe their racial prejudices, says to, to her servants, this Hebrew that he brought among us, he came in to laugh at me, to defraud me. And then to her husband, she says, this Hebrew you brought among us, he came in to take advantage of me, to laugh at me. And we see that Potiphar was very angry. We see his anger burned. But what's interesting about this story is the punishment that was given to Joseph. Because we see in kind of other law codes, like in later in Deuteronomy when the people of Israel are given the law, we see that the punishment for an attempted rape is execution. And that's for people who are free people. Now Joseph is a slave, and if he really attempted to rape this official's wife, the punishment for that, we would presume, would be execution or death. But that's not the punishment that Joseph is given. He's put in, in, put in the king's prison. Which may indicate that Potiphar didn't fully believe his wife. He didn't fully believe what she was saying. But he was put in kind of an awkward situation because she had gone around and told all the servants that Joseph uh, had done this. So what was Potiphar going to do? He couldn't just allow this to slide. It would be disgraceful to him. So we don't know for sure if Potiphar even believed the story. and We don't know if this anger was directed towards Joseph or towards his wife. But anyways, he finds himself in prison in a place that was called the place of roundness. And ironically, just like Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers... So it's presumably round. Now he's in a prison that's also round. You know, when we looked at the story of Joseph being sold by his brothers, we could kind of understand a little bit why his brothers might have been angry at him. I mean, he seemed like a cocky, arrogant young kid. You know, and obviously what they did was wrong, but we could kind of see their side of it a little bit. But here in this story... Joseph does nothing wrong at all. He's tempted. We don't know the depth of his temptation. But he never gave in to temptation. He didn't even compromise. He refused even to lie beside, or, or, beside her or to be with her. And yet he's treated as an evildoer. He's placed in a prison. It's just as if he had done it. He does all the right things and yet he suffers and is punished despite his innocence. But we know 
as the readers that God is just placing him in the position that God wants him to be in. God is just arranging the circumstances so that Joseph would have an audience with the king or pharaoh of Egypt. Because we see in the next chapter that as Joseph's able to interpret prisoner, these prisoners' dreams, he eventually will gain access to the king of Egypt. And God is just positioning him and putting him in the place that God wants him to be. And we know that one day Joseph is going to rise from the prison to become second in command of all of Israel. He's going to rise from the place of roundness, this pit or prison that he's in, and God is going to uplift him. So what does that teach us about injustice? What does that teach us about living in a world that isn't fair? It teaches us that a just God can use an unjust system for his glory. A just God can use an unjust system for his glory. We see the same thing with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus was tempted in every way, and yet he didn't sin. And yet Jesus was condemned as an evildoer. He was condemned as being guilty. His whole trial was a sham. Pharaoh, or uh, Pilate, we know that he said there's nothing in this man that deserves death. He washed his hands of what he did. The person that was crucified with him, one of the persons that, people that was crucified with him. So we've, des- we've deserved what w- was happening to us, but this man, he's done nothing to deserve death. And yet Jesus, just like Joseph, was condemned. He was beaten brutally, crucified, and put in, a, put in a different kind of pit or different type of prison. Put in a grave. But we know that three days later, Jesus would be exalted. That he would become, come to the right hand of the Father. And because of his death, he allowed a way for anyone who believes in him to have a relationship with him and spend forever with him. A just God used an unjust system for his glory. The truth is, the world we live in is not always fair. You'd like to think that if you do the right things, if you follow the principles in the scriptures, that everything will work out perfectly for you. But that's not the reality of the world that we live in. Sometimes we'll do all the right things. We'll follow what God has said, and yet still we will suffer as those who have done evil. Maybe this will mean economically. Maybe we'll do the right thing, stand up for what is right, and it will mean that we lose our job. Maybe it will cost us socially. We'll do the right thing, and it will cost us our friends or relationship with our family. We'll be treated as an evildoer because of who we are in following Christ. Maybe that will even be physically. Doing the right thing doesn't mean that everything will always go right for us. I mean, in the end, it does. You know, in the end, God will make all things right. But in this physical world that we live in, this world of injustice, this world that is not fair, Sometimes we can do the right things and end up being treated like evildoers. 
being treated as those who are guilty. Yet even when we do suffer, we can trust that God will use that circumstance, that injustice, and will use it for our good and for His glory. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly? And sinner. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Now, we can't go into that whole passage. Just focus on that last sentence. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Life's not always fair, but God will use all things that happened to us for our good and for His glory. Author J.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Hobbit, once said this, No man can estimate what is really happening at the present. All we do know, and that to a large extent, and that to a large extent by direct experience, is that evil labors with vast power and perpetual succession vain preparing always only the soil for unexpected good to sprout in. Evil is toiling. Injustice sometimes prevail. But God is using that injustice sometimes for His glory. God is a God of justice. God is a God who is good. And even though this life that we live in might not be fair, might not be just, A just God can use an unjust system for His glory. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You that even in the midst of the greatest evil that could ever be perpetuated, the murder of the Son of God, even through that, You could use that unjust system for Your glory. That You could use it to rescue and redeem people from all nations and tribes and tongues so that they would have a relationship with You. God, I pray for anybody here who's experiencing injustice. God, I, would, I pray that they would trust their souls to You who is faithful to them. That they would keep going. That they would keep trucking along. Keep their faith in You. Knowing that you have better plans right around the corner for them. God, I pray for those who are struggling with temptation. God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would empower them to change, to repent. God, I pray that we as a people would be a holy people. That when we experience temptation, that our first response would be to run. To run away from that temptation to keep driving by and to run right into your arms. 
God, I pray that we would be people who have that kind of strength, the strength that only you can give us. God, I pray that you would, through all things, make us more and more like your son. That we would live lives that are honoring and pleasing to you out of gratitude for all that you've done for us and all that you are for us. In Christ's name I pray.